the organisation asks me to fix their people, but it doesn't matter how much work I do within the system is fundamentally broken. Mm. You know, there's too much pressure put on them, too many deadlines, there's too much complexity, there's too many projects, managers are bullies, you know, like there's the environment itself is, is not changing. What can happen there is they get me to come in and do some work with their people and then they can turn around and go, oh, well, you've, you've had the training, now come on, you know. Toughen up, be resilient, get on with it, and then it kind of then it becomes their problem. Like they've done something wrong. Here with Debbie, and I think um, it's always good to set the scene on why people should listen to this podcast because I've said it a few times. But there was a guy we had on Clive, and we talked for an hour, and we, they didn't know who he was or why he was there, so they like stopped listening. So I think it's important to start that off. So Debbie, what do you do? It's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the easiest way to describe it is I'm a, I'm a consultant. I've got a background in learning and development. I've spent years running workshops with organisations. And now I founded a business called Blue Sky Minds. And yeah, we work really closely with clients to support them to deliver programmes around um, mental wellbeing and high performance. Boom. You said it a few times, I think. So I, I think as well, people like to know, you know, where Debbie came from mm. and why you're where you're at. So, you know, you're playing in the sandpit and you just had a feeling mental health was going to be your, you know, your business. What, what, what's, were you, where, where were you born firstly? Oh, okay. Going to go back that far. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a long <laughs> podcast. Uh, actually, that is, that is kind of an interesting story oh. because um, my mum was on her OE and kind of fell in love. And um, I was an unplanned pregnancy. Um, And mum was only 18 at the time. So that was obviously quite scary. Mm. Um, And um, my dad was a South African. Hmm. um, But they were in love and they decided to get married and move to South Africa, live on a farm. My dad managed a farm in the tobacco industry. Wow. And um, I was, so I was born in South Africa and my brother was born a year after me. So we're a year apart. And then when I was three and my brother was one, um, my parents brought us to New Zealand on a ship, which took eight weeks. So you can imagine how tough that would have been, having a three and a one-year-old yeah. <laughs> on a ship with no devices to keep them occupied, no wow. iPads. Huh. Why not plane? What was that about? Is uh, that- I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously they were like moving countries and had a lot of stuff. I guess it was just more economical to go by ship. Wow. Did the, so obviously there was a few stopovers and cool places. You didn't remember though. <laughs> no idea. Probably the wrong person to ask. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So then we, um, yeah, so I grew up in, in Pakaranga. Um, yeah, went to school, went to uni. And then, um, yeah, I guess because mum had travelled the world and I'd kind of wanted to go and do my OE. So I head off, headed off overseas and travelled for a couple of years and then, when I eventually ran out of money, I found myself myself in Edinburgh in Scotland. Hmm. Yeah, of all places. Yeah. Um, and managed to get a job at the Royal Bank of Scotland Fancy. in their head office branch on Watch Princess out. Street in Edinburgh. Shout out any Scottish people listening. Yeah. I don't think there is. <laughs> um, I had to wear a tartan uniform, this big um, green and blue tartan jacket with big gold buttons down the front. Charming. And I was on the cashier, so I was uh, in the Foreign Exchange Bureau for 12 months. So that was kind of, I guess, the start of um, a bit of a career in the banking industry, which is where I started. Poor poor person. What, what, um, (laughs) when was that? Like, what is, you know, this is a nice way of asking it. Uh, 
Oh, so that would have been, I think, oh, testing me now, 1995? Jesus. 1998? Okay. What was banking like in 1995? Because we were talk, I was talking to a person, um, Tibor, he was, he's going to come out soon on the podcast. And um, he, yeah, he, he was working, you know, old school accounting and like tra- everything was written on a ledger mm. and stuff. I mean, computers were invented then and the internet was coming. What was banking like in 1995? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't much in the way of technology. It was a lot of manual uh, recording. (laughs) And I mean, I was dealing with foreign exchange. So I just had to make sure that my book balanced at the end of the day in terms of how much Turkish lira and, you know, dollars I had left. So it was a real manual system from from what I was was working with day to day. How do you do that? So, you know, so you're doing currencies, exchanges... Is it international people coming or is it like they're going to go on a trip and they come and see you and give them money? It's more that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any inside scoop on the banking? <laughs> is it, what's it like? Is it is like, are they doing secret deals? <laughs> I know this guy used to call people up and say, sorry, we've lost millions of your dollars. We don't know where it went. That was his job. No, but I will admit that I, my accounting Finance skills are not great. Okay. So there were, there, I did get one guy who came back and said, um, Debbie, you were meant to give me a million Turkish lira. You gave me 10 million Turkish lira. Here's 9 million back. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just as well, they're honest, though. And I was very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I did, I did that for 12 months and then I managed to get some more money. So I did some more traveling. Hmm. Um, and then I ended up in London and ended up at Warburg Dillon Reed, which was kind of like a large stockbroker slash commercial bank. Random. Yeah. Okay. And so um, I worked beneath the trading floor where all the um, deals were taking place, stock market deals. And I was responsible for matching the deals up. So it was the electronic trading system. So yes, I had a computer, but it was green, black screen, you know, (laughs) kind of line by line. And I was just matching off the trades that the stock brokers were doing upstairs. Would they yell or what? Like I've heard like it's not as cool like as Wall Street where it's just people on computers and I never got to really go up there. You could hear it though, like like a neighbor that's stomping around upstairs. No, I couldn't actually. I mean, th- these were more kind of high-level deals between the banks. So it wasn't like the stock market that you and I might imagine from the movies. It was mm. more the banks were doing like 10 million, 20 million deals between themselves. So it was slightly different. Because huh. I heard that a lot of the banking system uses an old-school system. I think it's cobalt coding, where it's like the most inefficient thing you can imagine with only a few people can still use it, so they're starting to migrate those systems. Mm. And if you if you get it wrong, it's messy. But anyways, we, we, we probably shouldn't unpack because you said finance isn't It's your... not my thing, so no, let's move on, shall we? Yeah. Um, and then I travelled some more, and then I came back to New Zealand, and because I'd had that banking experience, I was able to get a um, like an entry-level job with um, ANZ Group here in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. So that was really cool. And I started out as a, um, I think my job title was a relationship associate, but basically I was a business analyst for the small to medium sized, um, depart- uh, small to medium sized business mm. area of banking, which of course you, you know about. Mm. Um, and so I was working alongside relationship managers, helping them to do business deals. Um, so once again, a lot of detail, a lot of numbers, a lot of drawing down business loans into accounts. 
also managed to stuff that up. Yeah, I was wondering why you keep picking this. Like, I keep a number wrong. Eh? There's a good ending to this story, okay, I promise. Um, I did draw down over $100,000 to the wrong account more than once. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't know. Yeah, anyway. So your relationship building's off the charts to counteract your numbers. Yeah, game. yeah. Um, I mean, I had some great managers and mentors, and I guess I was just really lucky that the powers that be could see I was never going to set the world on fire with my finance skills. Mm. But clearly, mate, well, maybe I had some other potential to offer. So, um, I mean, because it's a large organisation, I was really lucky. They just kind of plucked me out of the analyst role and said, why don't you come and do a secondment with us? We want to look at staff satisfaction, which is now called staff engagement. We want to look at the numbers and we want someone who's worked into the, in the business to help us to help staff to be happier and more motivated and have more meaning at work. Mm. And, you know, like you can see my eyes are lighting up, right? So that I just thought this is what I want to do. Huh. I don't want to settle um, bank accounts and draw money down and do Smart. finance, even though both my parents are accountants. Um, yeah, so I did a secondment in the head office and various other kind of roles alongside that. And then three years after that, did a whole lot of consulting, but it was all around motivating, inspiring, meaningful work, helping people to um, do their best work. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was lucky, really, that I managed to get into that through through banking. We like, you know, did you have any inclination you like? Because a lot of people that seem to be doing all right and enjoying their their life just by accident. It's like they're looking left and like, oh, here I am. I love this. Why don't I just keep doing this? Did you have a feeling you wanted to do something in the mental health space and you didn't have the confidence or you're just like, I'm just going to travel and then I'm going to do these numbers. I'm going to fuck a couple up and I'm just going to keep going. Right? <laughs> I had no idea I was going to huh. end up in that industry because I had parents that were accountants. Mm. I did a BCom, you know. Did they put pressure on you to study similar to them? Yep. Yeah, definitely, okay. definitely, and I, I just did that. I just didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what else to do. Um, although towards the end of my degree, I did start doing like papers on leadership and management and change management, and I, I did really enjoy those. So I guess I had an, an inkling that it was going to be something in business, but hopefully in the more interesting kind of management leadership areas. Mm. So yeah, hunt. Well, there's an important thing there. I talk about a lot is that the expectations of others. Mm. especially parents you know they mean well and they're f fearful of this world and they want their fam they want their children to you know follow their line of work because they're they're comfortable mm. um but a lot of people i see aren't aren't happy you know and they're living other people's lives mm. so on the motivational part well actually let's get to the so suddenly you're like okay i'm consulting all these people let's give it a whirl i'm gonna go do it as a business tell me about that part <laughs> oh that was so scary <laughs> yeah i suspect oh that was so scary um so that was about six years ago yeah so i actually the business had its five-year anniversary in march this year the same week i got covid Hmm. So I haven't really had a chance to kind of celebrate that milestone. So celebrate I, it now. I eh? will before the end of the year. I will before <laughs> the end of the year. Um, so yeah, it was a <laughs> it was a really really scary process. I'll be honest. Like it took me a long time to pluck up the courage to actually do it. Mm. But I knew I'd hate myself if I never tried. So it was one of those things. Which is like I just have to try this. I just have to do it. Like I just so. Um, 
But I guess at the time I was really lucky. My my boss, my two bosses at the organisation I was working with, um, I'd been there for five years and they were really supportive and they knew that I wanted to do this. So they let me reduce my hours so that I could mm. do it part-time, kind of start doing my market research and sussing out my products and services and my positioning. Um, and I had some really lovely mentors who gave me their time for free who had done similar things. Yeah. That was really helpful because, you know, the numbers side of it, you know, it wouldn't be my wouldn't have been my first, yeah. you know, thing to look at. But they were like, Well, how much will you charge and how many of those do you need to sell in yeah. order to pay the mortgage? Right? Yeah. Simple stuff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and we also just had to realise that for six to twelve months we wouldn't have the same income coming in. Um, but actually that's okay. You just become more resourceful and a bit more creative and you just learn to live with less. And if it's, you know, if you're doing something that you're really excited about, you make it work. True. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like the messy stuff. So, you know, the exciting, so you, you're shitting yourself. Yes. You, I'll swear you don't have to. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, smart. Uh, so, yeah, you're like, okay, I'll do this part-time, doing my market research. They're telling you the numbers. You're like, oh, okay. And then you want to get your first client. What did you do? What, oh, yeah. So Rejected um, 100 times and clutched on the 101st. You know what? You know they always say everyone gets a career break. Yeah. You know, you see it on the movies. Mm. I'd always thought to myself, oh, you know, I really want to have one of those moments that just feel like a career break. Yeah. But I didn't realise that normally those moments are incredibly scary and daunting. Um, and I, I, I guess I got one in that the um, I was part of the Auckland University alumni group and um, I don't know how they contacted me to say, would I speak at an alumni event for the university, like a, you know, wine and cheese evening for alumni of the university? And I thought, oh, yeah, that's probably a nice way to talk about my business and, you know, practice my sales stuff and get my ideas out there. Oh, my goodness. Because at that time, I think... um, mindfulness and was had just taken off in the New Zealand business world so it was kind of really topical Hmm. so 350 people registered and there was 170 people (laughs) oh my goodness just talking to you about it now I can I can just (laughs) feel like it was the the weeks leading up to that I was just feeling sick all the time (laughs) and I kept like fantasizing about how I could get out of it like Mm. not do it Mm. so it was really scary um but I, through that talk, got my first client. Wow. Yeah. What did you talk about? What was the topic? Uh, like, just it, overview. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was something like, you know, the neuroscience of mindfulness. Okay. So I talked about the science. Yeah. Um, really tried to bust the myths that people often have when they hear that word mindfulness. Um, and shared a couple of stories and case studies. Hmm. And then um, what was the close? Like, how did you get the client did you just say thank you and then just try to run or you socialized or no, you have a card honestly did you have a website a good friend of mine said put a sheet outside and as and say to people if you would like to hear more about what we offer put your email address on the sheet as you leave okay yeah that was it and people wow. did yeah and you just emailed them yeah yeah oh, sick. especially calling scary uh, hello would you like the business <laughs> and then okay first client comes in mm. the so you email is your first point of call what was your email like was it like hey please sign up <laughs> like what did you <laughs> well there was two ideas i had the first one was 
just to run this eight week course that I'd been trained. So we can we can talk a bit about that. But I was um, a newly minted facilitator in this program that I was really passionate about teaching. Mm. So I um, through the alumni offered a discount to um, people who wanted to do the eight week course. So I just found a space in town and ran the eight week course for a group of people. Mm. Um, and, I, and I also just emailed and said, would you be interested in me coming into your organisation and running something internally with your people? And a couple of early clients said, yep, that sounds great. Hmm. And you know what it's like when you get a couple of um, get a couple of people and you do a good job, yeah. <clears throat> then you've got a story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think the other thing that really helped was because I'd had a consulting corporate background. Yeah. I guess people trusted me. Credibility, yeah. You know, like I'd come from that background. They knew I wasn't going to do anything weird. I was going to stick to the science and the curriculum. and Maybe that's my problem. People think I'm going to do something weird. <laughs> just get that credibility. My content's <laughs> the credibility. And just FYI, this stops every 30 minutes, so I just do that sometimes. I'm still listening. Okay. Okay, so, you know, eight-week course, they come in, and then let's say you're going to do the talk for the organization and you're going to present the price. What it like? I mean, normally people don't like talking about price, but what what did you chart? Like you're like, hey, here's uh, this much, and you don't feel like you deserve it. And you're like, fuck it, put it on the paper. <laughs> oh, look, it's so hard. Yeah. I've, I've always struggled with that. Yeah, always struggled with that. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I always think to myself, if I was still in the corporate world, you know, given my level of expertise, I, you know, I, I'm sure I could probably earn enough money to pay the mortgage you need to know that when you're running a business you know you've got to back yourself yeah. you know you've got a level of expertise you've got something of value to offer and the advice I had earlier on which I think was really good was don't run around offering everything for free when you yeah. first start your business because people don't associate so much value with that mm. so I never I never did that um, I always charged something interesting and I was always open to negotiation with my clients as well. So I'd sort of, I'd put, I'd, you know, do the proposal, put the number down, but always let them know I was open to discuss that. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Most of the time they were like, yeah, that looks fair. That's, okay. Yeah. And have you found yourself increasing it as you feel more confident in what you can deliver? I yeah, hope so. I have been. Good. It's yeah, still just write a struggle. It down and see what happens. Yeah, it's still, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. And, um, yeah, but I am I am trying to, to do that. Yeah. Well, you're still here. It's six years on. I know. Almost six years. Five-year anniversary in March. I was listening. Mm-hmm. That you're going to celebrate later. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So what is it actually? So mindfulness, there's science behind it. I'm a big advocate for mm. it because people scare the shit out of me. So I just do it all the time to manage that. Um, and that's why I did commissionally selling. So similar to you're like, oh, I've got to talk to all these people on stage. I was like, okay, I'm going to talk, stop 40 new people a day um, and try and make money. <laughs> you're going to cold call 40 people a day? No, street. Stop them in the streets, what? in the vents, door knock. Seriously? Yeah, commissionally sales. So so that was how you overcame your fear, full immersion therapy. Yeah. Just jump straight in there. Best thing about it, didn't overcome my fear. <laughs> Surprising. Yeah, but I just kept doing it. I was just afraid. Yeah, I was like juggling tarantulas for a living. It was fun. Yeah, the, you know, the first time. So I was sitting there. I'm quite analytical. And I was sitting there analyzing, okay, this is how they stop these people. This is what they do. And they told you build a relationship. So like, okay. So you're in stress zone. This old guy walks past. Oh, he looks friendly. Go to shake his hand. He's holding bags. 
I'm like, shit, what do I do? But he's got a thumb out. So I shake his thumb and looking at him. He's like, confused, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm trying to build a relationship. <laughs> Boy, but you yeah. wouldn't get away with that these days. Nobody wants to shake hands or no, yes. have any contact. Shoulder bumps. Yeah. Yep. It'd be a bit harder for those people nowadays. And yeah. there's, there's um, a fire truck in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> I'm going to leave it in because, you know, it adds ambience. Um, okay, so you got this business. It's been going around a while. Um, what is like your dated, like what's, like, I love prospecting. <laughs> so you might not like talking about it, but how do you, do people just reach out to you? What's your strategy to grow your business? Mm. Just sort of wing it? Well. That's what I do. <laughs> Well, you're doing a great job. Thank you. Um, every single client has been a referral. Huh. You know, like I spent all this money and time building this amazing website and people love it, but I don't get any leads coming through it. Honestly, it's referrals huh. um, from my clients, which you, is really cool. Do you have intermediaries? You know, befriend the fisherman and set out. You heard that analogy? Nope. So think about... A lot of people are out there hunting, like trying to find new business and find new clients. But what they could do is befriend the person that has access to their dream mm. clients and focus on adding value to them. So uh, accountants, uh, this is how Greg built his business. He's a business associate. Um, just accountants and lawyers. And he just made sure he had two appointments with them every week. Mm. And by you focusing on them, then they have access to hundreds of your clients. So then it's it's less of a, like hope it rains. You know what I mean? Mm. That's a bit more active. Yeah, I mean, I definitely this year, one of my goals is trying to form more partnerships, I suppose, with oh, yeah. people that work in my industry, but not in the financial sense, just in the, hey, you're really great at what you do. If you think I'm great at what I'm, I do, why don't we just refer each other yeah. if a client has a problem that we think you can solve? Mm. Um, and I th that's that seems to be working really well. I've just started that this year. Nice. We've got a couple of coffee meetings. Nice. Um, yeah, and I quite like that model. That fit, that fits quite well with my values. Same thing. So accountants and lawyers, we give them business because we can't solve the problem. Mm. So essentially, it's it's a one stop shop for clients to get all they need. Insurance brokers as well, and we just give them business. Mm. I don't care if it comes back. I just care if they're good at it. Yeah, and and you know, like I works my I partner with my clients and if they've got a problem and I know that person can solve it that's awesome right because you're mm. really helping them and it's hard for for clients because they've got to go out to the marketplace and there's so many people out there how do you choose someone but if they trust me mm. um yeah and I trust the partner then yeah sure I mean I, I think people pay for personalization you know I don't understand intellectual property I haven't, I've yet to meet someone that actually has something that's unique aside from source code for a software they made. So don't mm. copy paste that and give it to people. But intellectual property, it's better to be known as a person that gave it away for free than being the one that's got the IP. Mm. That rhymes. Killing it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, okay. Is, is there any, uh, and we will talk about mindfulness and what <laughs> you're good at. I, I just love business. Um, is there any way you encourage referrals or is it just, hey, I want to give as much value as clients humanly possible and then something might happen? Or do you have a follow-up? Well, do you know what? That's what I started off doing. Okay. Um, but I've got, like, I'm, like I honestly, so much of what I've done is credit to mentors that have helped me, people that have walked the path before me. And, um, you know, the advice I was given was do obviously do a great job, right? That's a non-negotiable and then say to your client, 
do you know anyone else that you think might benefit from this kind of work? Would you mind doing an email intro for me? And if you've done a great job, they're usually more than happy to do that. Hmm. And it's a simple question, and you just have to ask it. Yeah. And if they don't know anyone or they don't want to do that, that's fine. But if you don't ask the question, you're not going to get the help. Gotcha. That's what Tibor does as well. Mm. I'm talking about him a lot because he was yesterday and it's one of the podcasts I remember. He was a lieutenant um, in South Africa. Oh, yeah. Doing a secret mission. Wow, that sounds like a good story. I'll have to listen to that podcast. Yeah, okay. We'll leave it at that. Okay, so that re- referral, that makes sense. Now, what is it that, what is the problem in organizations that you're seeing that you, you know, compliment? So is it the workers are stressed out, unmotivated? That's what the business owner will say. <laughs> they are unmotivated. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what, what, Whip what's, them into shape, Debbie. Yeah, yeah, they're the problem. <laughs> yeah, not they're me. the problem. Not the systems or processes wearing them down, it's them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a really interesting you know, thing just to cover off okay. really quickly is um, what I have to be really careful about in the work that we do is not coming in to a system that's fundamentally broken and actually too much is being asked of people and coming in, you know, and the organisation asks me to fix their people, but it doesn't matter how much work I do with them, the system is fundamentally broken. Mm. You know, there's too much pressure put on them. There's com- too many deadlines, there's too much complexity, there's too many projects, managers are bullies, you know, like there's the environment itself is is not changing. So what can happen there is they get me to come in and do some work with their people and then they can turn around and go, oh, well, you've, you've had the training, now come on, you know, toughen up, be resilient, get on with it. And it, <laughs> it kind of, then it becomes their problem, like uh, they've done something wrong because gotcha. they're not resilient enough. Hmm. So I always, you know, love partnering with organizations that get that and they're looking at the systems and the structure and thinking how can I ease the pressure you know all the stuff that um, Emily was talking about when you guys had a chat around meaningful work clarity how does this fit in how does my job fit in the strategy and the vision Mm. have I got a good boss Have, have I got a manageable workload you know am I using my skills and talents you know, all of that is obviously going to help. And then having me to come in as well and help people with, um, I call, I guess, mental skills training, you know, mindfulness, but I know a lot of people are allergic to that word. So <laughs> it just depends what the culture and environment is. But you know, how can you better manage your mind, have a healthier mind, um, so that, yeah, you can, um, you know, look after your mental well-being, but also for high performance. You know, like if you can have a healthy mind you're more likely to be a better performer yeah you know you probably know it from your own practice and experience it makes you much better at your job not just happier and there's something people don't really talk about especially on computers um email apnea so where people their breathing becomes like labored Mm. and tight and then crunched over the computer and then they're starting getting stressed and it's like a snowball and it starts moving in a certain direction Whereas if they brought more awareness to their breath using the, the mindfulness word, um, it, w- it would make a meaningful impact. So what's your um, mind control tips? Mind control. Sound like John Kehoe. Yeah. Do you remember him? No. No, okay, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look uh, him up. I was born in 1991 okay. when you were near Scotland. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he was. He kind of used those phrases. And, uh, yeah, ma- 
um, so I talk about it as, I guess, like mental skills training, um, you know, so that you can be more aware when you're sitting there holding your breath, tightening your shoulders. You know, it's an awareness thing, right? Rather than just being lost in thoughts and lost in what's happening in the email, you go, oh, okay. And if you can do that regularly throughout the day and be aware of that, you know, you stop that pressure from building up. Yeah. And as that pressure builds up, you're more likely to send that slightly snippy email, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or be less open to um, suggestions that other people are making or, you know, your creative thinking maybe isn't so great because there's that sense of kind of pressure and tightness and holding on and gripping and, mm. yeah, that can kind of just start to rise up. Makes sense. Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, I have a tendency to be a bit cold in email, so I send audio messages. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's a good idea. Yeah, they don't like it though. Because <laughs> one of the most efficient ways to communicate is to receive messages and send out audio messages. Because oh. it has context and you can say it very quickly. Some people get nervous and uncomfortable with it. Um, okay, so you've got these businesses and ideally they're one of the ones that care about their people and they're malleable. But... When you come across someone that might not necessarily see the problem as either their responsibility, the system's fault, or yada, 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 is there a gentle way where you're like, hey, I can help them meditate within this prison, but they're still in prison. What can we do? Oh, I mean, most of my clients get it. Okay. You know, they're usually fairly advanced in their thinking um, so when they bring me clients. in, generally. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, no, they get it. And they understand the link between healthy minds and high performance. And they already are doing those other things. And mm. now, and then they bring me in to give people that, that mental skills training, not mind control, <laughs> mental <laughs> skills training. You know, and that, that in itself is a whole systematic process of taking people through a whole lot of, um, you know, exercises and learning and insights and practice that they can then put in place over a long period of time. To help them, you know, manage stress and mm. focus and concentration. I mean, I imagine part of the reason that happens for you is because of the way you acquire clients, because your clients are actively or um, being suggested by someone mm. that has similar values, and that leads to them coming to you. So it's a harder process to scale, but it's a, a more meaningful mm. process because they're qualified. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Mm. Because I get all kinds. <laughs> we're just like, we we're going to go with this. Um, all right. So these non, not mindset skills. Mental skills mental training. Mental skills. Mental skills AKA training. AKA mind control. No. <laughs> mental skills training. It sounds like you manage expectation too because you said it, it's a process and it takes time. Yeah. Because you're not going to come and be a wizard cured. I'm suddenly not stressed. I know. I wish I could. I wish I could wave a magic wand and do that. But no, it does take time and patience and persistence. Like learning any new skill, right? Mm. You can do it. Anyone can do it, but it does take patience. And I think that's one of the myths I really love to bust around mindfulness is that idea of, well, I tried it twice, Debbie, and it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, that, that actually makes me really sad because there's a missed opportunity there for them to really try something that could make a difference. But because the everyone wants a quick fix, right? Everyone wants something that instantly makes them less stressed and happier. 
And unfortunately, this is just not one of those things. Mm. <laughs> it does take constant practice and reminding and learning. What's the best thing I've ever learned? Mindfulness, my opinion. The, the, there's something I, I learned recently. There's a guy called Alex Homozy. Mm. He's just prevalent online, but essentially built up to a $100 million business and um, would help uh, business um, gym owners scale. And now he just um, puts money in different companies because he wants to reach a certain level. But he would talk with the fitness industry that you would have to give someone what they want before you can give them what they need. Mm. So what he would do is he would sell supplements. um, So then you get more of a a price point for each client as they come in and then provide um, the training and the healthy components. So he started off by giving them what they want and then giving them what they need. So is there is there an accessible way to learn mindfulness? Like I know Tony Robbins does more of a, like that raising your hands, breathing thing. And it's like a more accessible, it's a bit loopy and you need a few, you know, people to be a lot on board with you, hence why it is it with crowds. But is there like a baby step way to see the benefit of mindfulness that's more accessible as opposed to like, hey, I'm going to do my thousand repetitions before I feel comfortable with it. Mm. Well, I, 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 I sort of don't think the eight-week program is a massive step. You know, a couple of hours a week mm. for eight weeks, you know, that's only that adds up to two days' worth of training. And you, people go off to conferences for a couple of days or, um, yeah. you know, and those little chunks over a over eight weeks, they really add up to a lot of value at the end, especially if you're doing your me- mindfulness meditation practice between each class. So, you know, I say to people, if it's if it's something you really want to give a go, um, you know, I always say that I reckon that's the best place to start. But if you can't do an eight-week program, either in a public course or through us, um, then, yeah, the next best thing is to, you know, do 10 minutes a day, five times a week. You know, find a teacher and a recording and a, uh, that you can relate to that you like. And just start to slowly strengthen that muscle, you know, but try it for at least two weeks Mm. and get in, try and get into that habit of doing it regularly, you know. And I also, we as part of, um, you know, to your point of, you know, can you give people something that adds a little bit of value? A lot of the introductory sessions that I run, we do little practices like a mindful minute. So I teach them how to do it. And then whenever they just want to have one minute, they can do it between their Zoom calls. Mm. Um, and I teach people little things like when you're walking around the office, just be where your feet are. Like, Don't be walking around the office replaying the 10 things you still need to do that day. Just feel the contact of your feet on the ground. That is a little attention training bicep curl right there. Yeah. You know, and all of those add up. Um, but I certainly don't want to downplay that dedicated mindfulness practice time because that's also really important. Yeah, it's funny. People hear this like, oh, just focus on your feet. They're like, what in the actual fuck? Because, you know, it's because <laughs> it's the reality. It's like, you know, we're practitioners, shall we say. Mm-hmm. The, the, the way I see the way I see meditation, it doesn't have to be a sit and do a kumbaya session because some people do struggle with that. Some people get more anxious and mm-hmm. PTSD. It can actually yeah. evoke a negative response. Mm-hmm. Um, all it is, is, you know, the analogy, don't think of a pink elephant. Um, is just that, and you're aware of this or might disagree, I don't know, is um, it's just an external focus, fundamentally. So your thoughts, if you try and not think, you're going to fuel the thoughts. 
So instead of identifying with certain things, you're focusing on different things. And it could be painting, it could be basketball, it could even be fighting, it could be, you know, like boxing in a trip, like not necessarily fighting people in the street. <laughs> um, so, so the challenge is, is how do you do it every day and what's the most accessible mm. way to do it, which is your breath is always there. Mm-hmm. And the t- 10 minutes is like a gym session, but as you say, you can do it the whole time. Like this whole podcast, I've been doing it um, because it's, it's just an external focus. So I'm focusing on you, bringing back to my breath, observing the sensations that I have. If there's a thought, I don't judge it, and it helps me land. Mm. So I'm just wondering as well on the eight-week course. So I get the mindfulness part. Sorry, can I just yeah, jump yeah. in? Thank jump you. Because I think there is a lot of misconceptions around what meditation is. Mm. And I do agree with you that for some people, that traditional just sit and notice your breathing doesn't work for everyone. But you don't, you don't have to just meditate by sitting and noticing your breathing. Mm. You know, you can, you can do really slow, mindful moving. You can do mindful walking. You can be aware of sounds. But you know how you sort of said you can just be mindful while you're doing activities. There is something to be said for just creating a bit of dialing down the outside world going somewhere that's a bit quieter and just sitting and noticing what your mind gets up to from moment to moment and practicing that skill of letting go of thoughts and coming back to some kind of present moment anchor. And if you're trying to do that while you're running, there's a lot happening, right? And so I think if you're trying to do it while you're running, it's more of just a kind of a concentration practice. But you know, if you want to really get to know your mind, Joseph Goldstein would say, you know, the best way to know your mind is to sit down and observe it. Mm. So mindfulness practice, if you're doing it as a dedicated practice, is just sitting down and watching these crazy oscillations that your mind is getting up to, right? It's fascinating. Well, I find it fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) You know, whether it's a stressful thought or an anxious thought or a random thought or the same thought that has been replaying 10 times in your head, you know, the rumination, the rehearsing, the rehashing. You know, there's something about getting to know some of those habits and patterns and getting, I get, you tell people to get curious about it, right? And then at a certain point, go, thanks, and let's come back to a present moment anchor. Um, so, yeah, I guess there are, I think it's important that it doesn't matter, you can modify that practice, but that dedicated practice I do think is really important. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, a, mm. it's essentially, it's the the most powerful of them. Like and I think especially the generation, you know, younger than me, with the anxiety and fears and depression and mm. and the the a lot of the connections they have with people are quite fleeting and superficial. Mm. So that ability to be alone with yourself without instant gratification and just um, observing yourself is powerful. And I can relate on the crazy mind, but well, not crazy mind, but observing it because. Um, have you ever done, you know, Vipassana, I always say it wrong, but the 10-day silent retreat? No, I've done, as part of my teacher training, we do have to do regular silent retreats. So I've done up to seven days. Jeez. So I haven't done 10 days. Yeah, I go mad. So essentially, for people that don't know, you wake up 4 a.m., you meditate till 9 p.m., and you have three breaks in the middle. And there's a period of time where you just sit, mm. and you can't move. You just observe mm. how that feels. Mm. It doesn't feel good. Yeah, I mean that's not for the faint-hearted, and that's I know I do know about those retreats, and that's a really structured, 
quite intense process and I always say to people you know if that's your ultimate goal great but build up to that you yeah. know don't just suddenly go right on my bucket list this year is a 10-day silent retreat Sorry, I launch oh did you <laughs> Yola. because it's like trying to lift up a 50k barbell yeah. if you haven't done the weight training you might strain a muscle yeah. You know, and to be held hostage with your thoughts for 10 <laughs> days. If you haven't done the training and you don't know what to do, if you get in a, a cycle of depressive thinking or anxious thinking or um, traumatic thoughts come up from the past, right? If you don't know what to do in those moments, it actually can make you worse off Yeah, at the end of it, not better. So I always say to people, build up to that, you know, and I just ran my first little two-day retreat for people a couple of weeks ago. Oh, did you? As a little, um, I wanted to give people a dip, a dip the toe in the water retreat experience. So <laughs> I want to try and do more of those because I'm finding loads of people are going, great, done the eight-week course, got a good practice in place, what's next? Yeah. And they want to go off and do the 10 days. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a second, let's let's build let's build up. Maybe maybe a couple of days, then five days, then seven days. Yeah. But no, there is something powerful about um, doing a silent retreat. And I, I know it sounds scary and people think they can't possibly sit silent for that long. But the reality is you don't. You always have opportunities to talk to the teacher and there's often group chats that can happen oh, and yeah. it's not like a rule that if you suddenly say something you know like you're going to get banished if you need to talk you're allowed to talk oh yeah. you know like if you need to say something we you... need i need to find your ones <laughs> <laughs> i think the word retreat's a bit misleading though right <laughs> no yeah it's not a retreat <laughs> it's well, not like, a retreat all, all that happens so for, for more context is yeah you, you don't talk to anyone except for the teacher once in a while for me i saw him three times give or take maybe maybe once a day maybe um and then you listen to a recording of some dude that's died yeah lovely bloke from what i could gather um and then you sit in <laughs> you sit you're not a... painting a very good picture well, of it's mindfulness horrible. here <laughs> can i just say that's a very spiritual yeah buddhist Bu a buddhist retreat and it's a very structured in a certain way yeah um, and that's great if that's what you want um but there's loads of other types out there you know the ones that we run mindfulness meditation or the ones that i've been on um less structured um and more just about how can i strengthen this mindfulness muscle and yeah. there's a lot of there's usually what we do is cycle between a bit of sitting a bit of walking, a bit of moving, and then have yeah. lunch, sitting, walking, moving, you know, have dinner, and then often a talk or something in the evening. So um, yeah, that's better. Does that sound better? Like for the first few days, we just focused on the end of our nostril. <laughs> so just oh, how does that feel? And it, and it's warmer when you breathe in and cold when you breathe mm. out. Learn something. Yeah, valuable. And then after that, hey, sit here, don't move for hours. <laughs> See, for somebody with anxiety, oh, could you taught. imagine that would be torturous yeah. and i because I, I just yeah there's a lot of um really good thinking now around trauma-informed mindfulness uh, yeah. so to your point of generations coming through maybe with anxiety i mean it's it's everywhere right you know so the old ways of nieces i've just kind of been told to sit still just don't work for everyone and i'm all about finding ways to make it work for people you know, so that they don't just go, oh, this isn't for me. They can go, oh, actually, it is for me, but this is how I need to practice. Yeah. Yeah. True.
And we'll move off this topic soon. Okay. There was, um, I just want to tell one story. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> but can you just put a disclaimer in there that it's a different type of mindfulness? So yeah, don't... disclaimer, this is the best kind of mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, the, it, mindfulness isn't this, this scary or intimidating. So I, I had a clear moment, I think, day seven, walking 9 p.m. by myself, and I see this possum. And I was just so centered and it didn't fear me at all. And it just slowly started walking up to me on a night, like beautiful night sky. Come, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll stop eating animals. You know, maybe they're just these beautiful creatures. And then it did a loop after I walked past it and bit me. (gasps) No. So I changed my mind. So you went back to (laughs) Oh my, seriously. What did you do to that possum? Nothing. Man, that's insane. Psycho. It's yeah. too confident too. I think it just wow. wanted me to move on. Well, it must know at that retreat centre, people walk very slowly. It's, <laughs> yeah. got, it's got its opportunity there to just race up and bite someone. And they're not going to say anything because you don't make noise. No, <laughs> I'm sure you did though. Maybe not. Maybe okay. not. Because, you know, I've been sitting there for hours observing pain. So, you know, I was, I was ready. Yeah, ready I for ready it. For You're being tested. Shocked. You're yeah, being tested. <laughs> yeah. So I tried vegan for a while and then it was like, no. Nah. Um, okay, so... What with those that trauma mindful um, teaching? Mm. Are there certain adjustments, like um, suggestions you make? I mean, you can't say because everyone's unique, but some ideas on if this didn't work, you can try this. If this mm. doesn't work, try that. Yeah, so maybe now's a good chance to talk about the the MBSR training. MBSR. So if, because that's the training that I've been that I've got helps me to help people with all different backgrounds and uh, yeah. it's got that kind of built into it so I think it would be useful to explain that so MBSR is mindfulness-based stress reduction you heard of that now I have now you have yeah. great yeah I mean it doesn't it's not that well known but most most my, mindfulness programs have been offshoots of that that's mm. kind of considered that was the foundation piece so um that you know it's been around for a long time now but it came out of uh, the university of massachusetts um mm. there was a microbiologist there professor john Kabat-Zinn. you may have heard of him um and he you know back this was in the late 70s early 80s right and um they they were next door to a teaching hospital so he did a lot of work um with patients and he started to notice that even though patients were cured from their acute illness or injury or whatever, they were being discharged from hospital still with chronic pain or maybe anxiety or depression linked to their illness. And doctors weren't really doing anything to help them with that. And um, so he went to his superiors and said, you know, and he, he had a lot of training in mindfulness and yoga and said, um, can I develop an eight-week program, and can we see if it's helpful? And um, they all thought he was a bit crazy, Um, but he managed to get a little bit of budget and a room in the basement with no windows, and he got given a group of patients and said, okay, go for it. Um, But because he was a scientist, luckily he did put some kind of good measures in place so that he could get some data on whether it helped people, and he developed this program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and it's a couple of hours a week for eight weeks. And you mm. start off for the first three weeks really learning how to stabilize your attention. You know, so just that fact that during this podcast right now, you're able to keep your attention pretty much here in the room with what's going on means you've got that basic level of stabilized attention, right? 
70 percent nice Um, and that's just a muscle that needs to be strengthened so the first three weeks are stabilizing attention and then you start to move into um, you know what are those what what are my signature stress reactivity you know what are those habits or patterns I'm getting stuck in that are sending me in a downward spiral or sending me in a spiral of depressive thoughts or um, triggering anxiety how can I be really aware of all of that and um, work with it a bit more skillfully? So that was the eight-week program, and he ran one and luckily got some really good data around reduced stress, um, um, you know, lots of other health outcomes. And then he just basically replicated that and got more replication, and then other um, other researchers got interested and replicated it. And there's, so there's quite a big... Uh, data now around the benefits of that particular mindfulness-based stress reduction program. Hmm. And then um, a couple of professors at Oxford University got really interested in what he was doing, and they were trying to help people with depression and anxiety, and they wondered if this um, eight-week program might be helpful. So they went and studied, studied and learnt about the course, and they developed what's called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is a similar program. Um, but has now been proven to be as good as antidepressants to treat people with recurrent depression. Mm. So back to your original question, you know, people with trauma or depression and anxiety, yes, they can practice mindfulness and can help them, but it needs to be with a qualified teacher and it needs to be done in a certain way. Mm. So um, there's certain things in that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that are a little different than the mindfulness-based stress reduction because, you know, you're dealing with people that have active depression. Mm. So, you know, they've got to take that into consideration. Yeah. But generally the groups that I work with in organisations, um, you know, I'll get, I'll get a mix and I do do a screening form and get people to disclose to me confidentially if they're suffering from acute, uh, suffering from depression or anxiety or um, past trauma that still affects them now. And I'm aware of that and we'll have a conversation about that going into the eight-week course just so that I can keep an eye on them and I make sure they've got the support that they need. Hmm. But generally, I mean, they find it really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds pretty chilly, two hours for eight weeks. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, but you've got to do the practice in between. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the prepping. No, 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 the mindfulness practice. Oh, so, no, the people don't. Know. I mean, for you, though. You know, you've got the system, worked it out. Sounds like though you, you have one-on-one meetings or calls with the people with trauma or what? Yeah, definitely chat to them beforehand and just find out how it's affecting their lives and, um, you know, okay. what kind of, what do I need, how can I best support them? Are they talking to a psychologist or their counsellor about, can you go, go and talk to your counsellor, tell them this is the program. They probably would have heard of it, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, because it's come out of a clinical setting. Tell them you're doing this course you know, if um, and keep checking in with them and keep checking in with me. Smart. I mean, from what I've gathered from talking to the psychologists and whatnot is that you part of part of the the biggest talent is identifying the issue. The other thing is the relationship you can build, mm. and then tailoring the solution based on that interpretation that will evolve over time, and then risk management. So. Do, do you have a process for risk management and obviously you're identifying people that could be at risk or need more attention mm. and then working in conjunction with psychologists. Do you think about that? Like a, the 
how to manage the potential risk because you're delving into the mind, <laughs> not mind control. Yeah. Well, do you know, you know, this eight-week program, it's a very, very safe program. You know, where people run into big problems is when they go off and do those 10-day retreats. You know, mm. so on the whole, actually, this is really safe and there isn't a high level of risk. Most people that are coming coming to work every day, um, you know, are generally in the right frame of mind to do this eight-week program. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just oh, I've got the training. I know what to look out for. Um, generally, pe- you know, people are, are absolutely fine um, as long as they've got got that support from me and the person that they're working with. And they generally get to the end and they're really grateful. They've got these skills now to help them manage anxiety. Or, you know, the other thing I love working with groups over eight weeks is that camaraderie, mm. you know, because a lot of people who suffer, suffer alone. And they're too scared to tell anyone and they're too scared to admit it because it makes them feel like they're weak. And yet over that eight-week program, you realise you're not alone. Your mind Everyone else has got crazy minds, you know. Everyone else has moments where they get anxious in certain situations. You know, we all have um, times where we feel scared or anxious or sad or worried. It's part of the human condition. Mm. And I think, you know, that's such a lovely... I mean, I really enjoy that as well, people getting that insight that they're not alone. Do you try, like, because for a while, like, I've wanted to, to help people with emotional success, that fulfillment component. And I was thinking, you know... you almost like a cult structure but essentially you um, separate them from the the current environment to try and instill better values and create a sense of community and support problem is they go back into the environment that created mm. the anxiety or depression do you ever work on tools to create healthy environments or encourage them to have recurring like sustaining it mm. yeah and that's why i love working with organizations because you've got this ready-made community mm that you can then, um, that that becomes their new environment. So, you know, then it's about working, you know, and if I give an example of an insurance um, company, New Zealand insurance company that I've been working with for the last three years. Three years. We've got a lot of different programs that we're doing with them and they're, you know, really cool. But we talk a lot about, do you have places people can go and meditate at work? You know, are are people, can we teach teams to start meetings with mindful minutes? You know, is it something that people feel comfortable talking about at work, you know? Um, so you're, you're creating that community. And then when you've got people that have gone through these eight-week courses, they then become graduates. So then you've got that graduate community. So then it's helping them to keep going and lean mm. on each other and do, like, lunchtime meditation practices. Yeah, I was putting my business hat when you're talking. I was like, oh, how, recurring revenue sounds hard, but three years of repeated workshops. Is that kind of like, so they do their eight weeks and then you do a maintenance each month or or you do an eight week and another 10 weeks? Or <laughs> Yeah, do the eight weeks and now sign up for 18 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would the be dream. interesting. <laughs> um, so we started off with this particular client, um, the head of well-being you know, I was really keen. She'd spoken to some of my other clients and, you know, wanted to do some meaningful work. So, head yeah, we of got... well-being, is it the title? Oh, well, she is the head of well-being. Ah. But I don't know if that's actually her title. It might be something like... Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Do you... Have you not oh. heard of that before? Well, it's just cool. They call them the head of well-being. It's a lot of pressure. Like, soon as I know. Head well-being's <laughs> off kilter. Yes. Sorry, it's them. <laughs> they have control over their emotions. I'm just here to give them cake. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah the, I mean, obviously that that particular function in organisations is 
getting a lot more um, prominence. Yeah. Given the last two years, um, yeah, sense. she she manages all the wellbeing programs, um, and she wasn't scared. You know, she didn't. She wanted mental health to be at the forefront of that because she knew how important that was. Right, so that was awesome. So we got the eight week program in place. Started with the middle level managers. Middle level man, middle level managers went back to their team and say, "Hey, I think this would be really great for you guys. You're welcome to sign up." So that just kind of grew organically, and then we just offer two or three programs a year, and um, any staff can sign up for that if they get their managers sign off. And then we were there were certain parts of the business that we needed to do something a bit different with. So, for example, the contact center environment. It's really, really different and really hard for people to get off the phones for two hours a week for eight weeks. So um, I worked with the head of the contact centre who'd done the eight-week course and we decided that we would run something called MAT training, which is Mindful Attention Training, and we would do it in little bite-sized pieces with teams for 45 minutes a week for four weeks. Mm. So it's just really simple little practices that they can start doing to support themselves between customer calls. Um, and then also at this um, organisation, they've got a, um, have you heard of mental health first aiders? Or So a lot of organisations now are training up certain people to be the first point of contact if someone is in mental distress. Hmm. So, um, yeah, and so they've got uh, a group of mental health first aiders who have the skills in terms of who to refer these people to, but not necessarily the skills of how do I sit with this person who's in distress and just let them tell their story without me freaking out or jumping in too quickly and want to solve their problem, feeling like I have to rescue them. So we developed a little program called Powerful and Present Conversations around non-judgmental listening. Mm. So I guess it's mindfulness and action and conversation. Um, and then the other cool thing we've just started, which I'm really excited about, is um, the head of the contact centre had had her own mental health struggles and really wanted to normalise that how, you know, many of us go through these times when we struggle. So um, we recorded a video of her telling me her story. So I was in the interviewing seat like you are, asking her questions about her journey, and we've recorded it. And um, going to launch it as a video series, and it was—it's a really honest account mm. of how one day she was okay, you know. And she, this is a senior person, so it's risky for her to yeah. tell the story, right? But you know, she was just talking about how she was okay one day, and then she wasn't okay, and this is what happened, and it was really scary, and this is how she, this is what she did to help herself, with the idea that. It's okay to not be okay, and it's we're all in this together, which is what we've called the series. Yeah, well, it's all warm and fuzzy. Sounds cool. The um, I just uh, I'm just gonna ask you a question. I'm curious as well because you know I I there's something that's um really important to me is you know people's mental well being. I'm a little on the harsher side, so you know I'm listening and um learning and developing that perception. What, what what do you, like, you know, let's say you have a business owner, they're like, I want results. Um, you probably don't come across them because of the nature of your referrals process. But if they're like that, do you notice a change in terms of the bottom line for companies as well? Mm, I mean, that's a really good question. And of course, organizations want to see 
um, that what you're doing has an impact. Mm. I totally get that. So I'm glad you raised it. And especially if you're investing in an eight-week course, I yeah. totally get organisations can't just do that because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's why when we do a piece of work, we look for something we can measure. You know, we were talking about this before in terms of data. Yeah. What can we measure so we can say, yep, there's something there tangible that we've made a difference to. Um, and then from there, we can make the link to organisational outcomes. So, for example, for the eight-week programme, we measure things at the beginning and at the end, such as self-perceived stress, using us a well-known scale. We ask questions like, how focused are you in meetings and on calls at work? Um, you know, what's your attention like? How productive are you or how easily do you get distracted? We ask those questions at the beginning and at the end and then we, we look for percentage shifts. Um, and generally we see a decrease in stress um, and an increase in stabilising of attention and productivity. And we know that they're going to make a difference, right, to the bottom line. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I know straight after an eight-week course, people, you know, might notice an immediate benefit and then it might filter off. But we do measure again three months later to make sure that's been sustained. And be like, yo, let's do another one. It's a good follow <laughs> But the thing is, that, well, that's an important point after the eight weeks. What mm. what can we put in place in the organisation to keep people practising? And, you know? and we've got to grow your business, mate. So you can make more of an impact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So okay, that makes sense. Similar to Stuart, Stuart's um, measure will measure the start, um, to see you know his you know the company objectives, what they're trying to do, and here's the change that's been um that's happened. So that makes sense. So instead of focusing on hey here's how much top line revenue you're gonna get, it's like (laughs) here's the problem. Here's the look. They're more productive. They said they were. Or you could just be really good at like talking to them on one on one. So when you're doing the one on one calls before you meet them, like, hey guys, like, here's the deal. Ten <laughs> percent increase. Your <laughs> mind goes to some weird places. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> nah, obviously you wouldn't still be here if that's what you did. That's just it's funny. Well, believe it or not, we've spoken for an hour. Wow, that that went fast. I'll take that. Um, so leaving a remark whether it's someone struggling um think there's a, a stigma where they don't feel comfortable to express themselves mm. and your advice for them or support and how they find you if there's these organizations that well let's start with the easy one how they find me um so we can put the link in your in your meeting notes um and also if you're listening to this and you'd you know, you'd like to do a public eight-week course, not necessarily through your organisation. I can recommend teachers that run public courses. We don't do them, but I know of some great teachers. You know, but if you can get enough of you together in an organisation and go, you know, go to the person who holds the budget for learning and development and mm. ask them to sponsor a, a course, you know, that might be a nice way to get something started internally. Yeah, for those you know, struggling to speak up, um, yeah, I mean, I, I always say get the help you need <clears throat> first and then when you're on stable ground, share your story, you know, because it's really important that we do talk about our own struggles, um, but we have to be on stable ground first so that we're, you know, when people come and want to talk to us about it and share their own stories, it doesn't re- like trigger us or upset us. So that's what I'd say. Boom. There you go. First podcast. Ta-da. <laughs> yes, did it. We're finished. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. That's right.